0: A couple months ago, I took the youth group from the church I, I'm a part of, Elk Baptist Church, to a winter retreat in Wisconsin. And, and the thing I love about winter retreats is a chance to hang out with your students for about 72 hours, which is about five and a half months of normal youth group time. I actually, I actually do enjoy it. I'm still young enough for that. And, And and, and it's really cool because you get to hang out with them, you get to talk to them, you get to learn stuff about them, but the funnest part is that we have chapel sessions every day where they get to hear about Jesus, and then usually on Saturday nights, the speaker will give up and they'll give a gospel presentation. And so I was really excited for this, that the, that the speaker would get up and proclaim the words of Jesus to them, the good news that he came and he died on the cross for them and forgiveness of their sins. And so I was super excited for the kids to hear this in a different way than I've been telling them. And it was the most disappointing thing I've ever heard in my life. It was the worst presentation of the gospel I've ever heard. What happened was the speaker got up and he had an acoustic guitar playing in the background. Nothing wrong with acoustic guitar. But he then spent the next 30 minutes reading a story about the crucifixion of Jesus. He didn't miss any part of it. He went into painstaking detail about every event. And at the end of it, at his big finish, he asked the guitarist to stop playing. He says, I don't want to manipulate you. But if you don't accept Jesus, He did this for nothing. I was mad. I was angry, and I feel like this was God's anger flowing through me because what He was trying to do to my students was to get them to guilt them into the gospel, to guilt them into coming to Jesus, and and guilting people to do something makes no sense. If you think about it, and your boss says something like, "If you don't have this assignment done by Friday, you're fired." That's going to guilt you into doing it, but, but you're not going to have a newfound love for your boss, a newfound love for your job. You're not going to go home and wish you were still at work. You are going to go home and be, and be sad that you're still at that job and you're going to begin looking for another one. Your mom asks you to clean your room and, and you don't want to do it, but she says if you don't do it, you're grounded for the next week. She guilts you into cleaning. You don't have a newfound love for cleaning. You're not passionate about cleaning. You do it so you don't get in trouble. That's the same thing with being guilted into coming to Jesus. It's almost as if you have to do stuff for Him. He's now this God who is above you, who's angry at you, who's judging everything you do. And so you read your Bible because you don't want God to be mad at you. And you pray because you don't want God to be mad at you. And you think that you need to tell other people so they can come be guilted to this God so so God won't be mad at you. And you need to disciple and serve God so He doesn't be mad at you. And what you end up discovering is that you You don't love God, you you actually hate God, and you're resentful at Him. And so, so often on Good Friday services, this is the emphasis to guilt you into Jesus. And so we give you this picture of the crucifixion, we tell you exactly what Jesus went through, and we try to guilt you through that emotion rather than telling you a theology and a practical uh, application of what the cross means. And so I have about 30 minutes to tell you about the cross, and I'm really excited. We're going to cover a lot of material. And I'm going to talk really, 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 really fast, and I do that a lot because there's a lot of stuff I want to say and very few much minutes to say it, and so we're going to try to get it. We're going to go through Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And so while you're turning to Romans chapter 5, let me just give you a quick summary of what Ro- was happening So there's this guy named Paul who wrote the book of Romans, the church at Rome. Paul wrote 13 books of our New Testament, and he was passionate about Jesus. He wrote about Jesus. He talked about Jesus. He preached Jesus. He started churches to teach other people about Jesus. He trained leaders to teach other people to teach other people about Jesus. He was passionate about Jesus. But this wasn't always the case. Paul, the first time we meet him in the Bible, goes by the name of Saul, and he is a Pharisee who sets out to murder and kill Christians. It's his life mission to stamp out this group of people called Christians. And he is present and he gives his uh, approval to the first stoning of a guy named Stephen in the Bible. And he actually is going to spend his life going to other cities to arrest Christians and put them to death. And so Paul is on his way to Damascus to, to arrest a bunch of Christians. They, on his way to Damascus, he meets Jesus Jesus appears to him as a shining light, and he says, "Paul or Saul, Saul, why are you why are you or why I don't know what Why are you persecuting me?" That's the word. And he, and, and Paul kind of just freaks out. And he doesn't know what's going on, and so he becomes blinded. He goes to this house of this guy, and he becomes a Christian. He becomes what he hated most, and and God changes his name from Saul to Paul, reflecting the transformation that happened within him. And he is writing these words to us. And so, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, says this For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. From the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so, if you remember anything of what I say in the next 30 minutes, what I want you to get out of it is this that you and I are more sinful than we could ever imagine but God is more loving than we could ever imagine. You and I are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but God is more loving than we could ever imagine. I hope that makes sense. And the cross and the reason we celebrate on Good Friday makes sense at the end of the next 30 minutes. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to dive right into these verses. And it's so good to be here. I'm thankful for having me. And I'm going to pray and we're going to start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and for just getting to celebrate the, the death of your son. And, and that, that is a celebration for us. We thank you that our country recognizes this as a holiday where many of us don't have to go to work, don't have to go to school. And we can just reflect more on you. We thank you for you're giving us the freedom to talk about this openly. And we pray that we learn and grow about in you tonight. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Verse number eight, v- verse eight starts with this phrase, but God. But God. If you guys ever read your Bible, if you're ever doing devotions or in a small group, and this phrase comes up, I want you to circle it. I want you to underline it. Whatever it is when you do, when you read, just t- whatever it is, do it to that phrase. But God. This isn't going to symbolize that something amazing is going to happen. God is going to do something incredible. God's going to do something impossible. There's going to be a situation or a circumstance, and God is going to change it. All throughout the Bible, when this phrase appears, but God, look for something awesome to happen. And so what is God going to change? Going back to to verses 6 through 7, it says this, For while we were still weak, This involves being powerless. Some of your versions of your Bible translate it that way. Being powerless to help ourselves. While we were weak, unable to change our circumstances, while we were stuck where we are, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We'll come back to that in a second. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Paul is saying this, that that if you think about it, if you had to give up your life for somebody, who would you give it up for? Maybe a good pastor, maybe a a good preacher, maybe a good friend, a good family member, a good person who's done something to society. But you wouldn't do it for the ungodly, the criminals, the, the people who have done something wrong for you. But God While we are described as ungodly, while we are powerless to change our situation, God is going to intervene and do something amazing and incredible. And so what is God going to do? But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so covering that real quick, what does it mean to be a sinner? In order to understand our sin, we need to first look at who God is because we can never be in awe of the cross unless we are in awe of the God who sent his son to die on the cross. And so I'll, in two minutes or less, I'm going to try to explain God to you. <laughs> God, as we learned very on early on in the Bible, is a mystery. We cannot comprehend God. God is, God is wholly other and different than us. We cannot know God. We cannot discover God. God needed then to reveal himself to us. And so God revealed himself to us through nature. God revealed himself to us through the word of God. And finally, God revealed himself finally to us through Jesus Christ who came to die for us. And so we learn things about God. We can discover a little bit about who God is. But, but the most part, God is mysterious. God is unknown. God is different. And so we can learn a lot about God, but we cannot learn everything. This should be comforting to you guys. If, if you are able to know everything about God... God would be no different than you. What would say then that I couldn't become God? If, if God is knowable, God is not different than us. And so God is mysterious. We need to, to understand that and, and, and like that. God also, we learn, is what we call Trinitarian. This is something I shouldn't have gone to in two minutes, but it's, it's necessary to understand where we're going. God is one God. It's not that there is this God, and then that God, and then that God, and they kind of all got together and decided to create some stuff. It's not like there were nine billion gods, and they had a giant battle, and then God eventually won, and He was the one God. There is only one God. This one God exists existing eternally past, present, and future, but He exists in three persons. This is what we call the Trinity. It is a mystery that we cannot understand. What I don't want you to hear when you say that is that there are three separate gods. There's God the Father over here, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Three separate gods. There's one God but three persons. Also, don't look at it this way. That At one moment, God is Father, and then he stops being Father, and then he starts being Son, and then he stops being Son, and then he starts being the Spirit. That, that's not the way to look at it either. It's one God who exists as three persons. It's called the Trinity. Talk to your pastor about it. They'll make it more and more sense than that. <laughs> So this Trinitarian God, in the beginning, created everything. We learn that God is powerful, that he created everything out of nothing, and he created everything out of nothing by simply speaking it into existence. This is power that we cannot comprehend. This is power that we cannot control. This is power that we cannot fathom. This powerful God is also so loving that after he created everything, he created man and woman and he formed them and developed them and created them in his image with dignity, value, and worth. He created them valuable because he created them and they are to reflect his glory and his purposes. And so as we understand that God, we understand just how grave our sin is. And so the first sin was when Satan came to Adam and Eve and, he, and, and said, you don't need to follow God. You can be your own God. And this was very attractive, I think, to Adam and Eve that, that they didn't need to worship this one God. They could be their own God. They didn't need to follow God. They could do what they wanted to do. They didn't need to obey his commands. They could make up their own commands. And this was the first sin. It's called idolatry where you place something in a position above God. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is our lifestyle. We, uh, as Martin Luther put it, we are idol factories. We spend our entire existence worshiping the stuff that God created. We need more of this. We need more of that. We spend our lives getting money. We spend our lives obsessed with ourselves, with our time, our energy, and our money, just worshiping and glorifying ourselves or glorifying something that God created. And so we constantly put someone or something in a place that's belonging to God. Romans 3.23 says that that everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. A good definition of sin would be then that we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 1.23 also written by Paul says that we exchange the glory of God for something else. That instead of worshiping God, having God as the most preeminent, dominant thing in our life, we have exchanged that. We've taken him out of that position and put someone or something else in that place. And then we spend our life worshiping that thing by offering sacrifices of our time, our energy, and our money. We consistently worship something other than God. In youth group, we do this activity where I ask the kids, how many times a day do you think you sin or you commit idolatry or you worship something other than God? And, and they say about 50 times a day, which if we're honest, way more than 50. I, probably more than 50 since you have sat down in this room at 7 o'clock. And so 50 times a day, we'll just take that number, 365 days in a year, and you live to an average lifespan of 75 years, you will have committed 1 million... Three hundred sixty-eight thousand seven hundred fifty sins, And we get this idea that, that we're just good people who sometimes do bad things. No, we're bad people who sometimes do good things. And so we need to understand our sin. And we can only understand our sin when we understand who God is, how powerful and loving and glorious he is, and how f- far we fall short of that standard. But... God, going back to where we started, shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while we completely rejected the things of God, Christ died for us. And that's where we're going in the next few minutes. Why did Christ die for us and what does that mean? Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This phrase, justified by his blood, means that that we are declared righteous in the sight of God. But before we get there, we need to understand why we need to be declared righteous. The opposite of justification is condemnation. The opposite of justification is condemnation, which means that we are guilty of a crime, that there is evidence that supports our guiltiness, that we have been found guilty, that we are deserving of a punishment. Revelation 12, 10 describes Satan as the accuser who stands before God and accuses us day and night. Think about that, that, that Satan is accusing us day and night. And he's just going, God, look at it. Look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him. Look at him again, look at him. Just day and night, accusing, 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 accusing. We are incredibly guilty of our sins. God knows it. God understands it. We should be condemned because of that. We have created a divine um, crime against God. And so because of our divine crime, we deserve a divine punishment, condemnation from God. But instead, we received a divine sacrifice, which is Jesus on the cross. And so justification is a a legal declaration by God that, that, number one, you are no longer guilty of your sins. They are completely forgiven. They are completely wiped away. But more than that, it's this declaration that we are completely righteous. There's a difference in this. If, if our sins were merely just wiped away, what happens when we sin again? What happens when we sin again? What happens when we sin again? Mike, during the offering, read a verse that, that our high priest Jesus only needs to be sacrificed once And that's because we have been declared righteous because of His sacrifice. What that means is that when God looks at me, He doesn't see a little five-year-old kid who lied to his mom. He doesn't see this little kid who stole something when he was six. He sees me as Jesus. Absolutely perfect. He can point to me and say, there is no sin in that man. He is completely perfect. We have been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath. Of God. This is where we're going to spend some of our time today. Wrath of God. When, when people think of God, they normally think of God as love. Some people even see it as jobs, God's job to forgive us. We mess up and we say, you know what? God will just forgive me. I saw a picture on Facebook the other day that said this. He's like, I, I, I prayed and asked God for a bike. But then I realized that's not how God works, so I stole the bike and asked for forgiveness instead. And so we see God as just this, this God who's supposed to forgive us because God is loving. God is just going to forgive us. And no matter what we do, we're okay. But we ignore then the wrath of God. And, and when we think of the wrath of God, we, we get weird ideas in our head. We picture a God who's just always angry and always grumpy. And, and when we pray to God, we see this angry God who's always upset with us. And so we're afraid to talk to God because we see him as just anger. Is that what he means by the wrath of God? Anger? We we can't separate love and wrath in our culture. You can't be both wrathful and loving at the same time. But what we need to understand is that, that God is not wrath. God is love. That's one of his characteristics. But a characteristic of God is not wrath. Let me explain this to you. Wrath is simply God's holiness Against sin. God's holiness against sin. The word holiness means whole. The complete totality of all God's characteristics characteristics, yeah, characteristics can be described as holiness, as whole, as completely perfect. God in his love is completely perfect. God in his justice is completely perfect. God in his grace is completely perfect. And when you put all of those characteristics together, that is God's holiness. His wholeness. And when we think of wrath, it's not that, that God is wrath, that's His characteristic. It's, it's God in His wrath, it's His holiness against sin. And so let me say this, that the price of diluting God's wrath, when we say God cannot be wrath or God, God always loves all the time or God will just forgive every sin, when we say that, we diminish God's holiness. And when we diminish God's holiness, we take away from God what is his central characteristic, making him no longer God and something else. And so we have, to be, uh, we have to be conscious of how we describe God. And so when we talk about the cross, it's God's wrath poured out on Jesus, but that is his holiness against sin. So let me describe it this way. John Piper says that the cross is all about this. The Father full of righteous wrath, righteous in that it is right, it is just, he, he, we are deserving of that wrath, loved us so much that he sent his Son. That, that God in his righteous wrath, his holiness against sin, instead of pouring that out upon us who are deserving of it, loved us so much that he poured it out on his Son. Going back to what we said at the beginning, you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. When you think about your sin, the totality of what you've done, the injustice you've done towards God, you cannot even fathom how much that is. If you were to make a list of sins that people commit, there would be sins on there that people commit that you haven't even thought of. There would be times when you've dishonored God, you've disgraced God, and you don't even know it. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine. But... You are more loved by God than you could ever imagine. So when you think about the cross, think about it this way. The cross is where God's glorious standard was met without lowering his standards. You didn't have to take away the wrath of God in that moment. You didn't have to sacrifice the love of God. In that moment, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus and the love of God was poured out on us. It's this beautiful, beautiful picture of grace that is undeserved for a people that do not deserve it. So verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, we have been forgiven of our sins, we have been declared completely righteous and sinless and perfect by his blood through the sacrifice that Jesus gave us, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Wrath again is the holiness against sin. Verse 10 for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. For if while we were enemies... But, but, but God's my friend. God loves everybody. Do you get the way God or Paul describes sinners in this passage? He starts out by saying, you, you were weak. We're powerless to change anything. And then he moves to ungodly. And now he gets us at enemies. Enemies implies that we we are in direct opposition to God. That, That here is God and here is his plans and here is his desire for our lives. And we are standing right before him in direct opposition to what he wants. We are enemies of God because of our sin we think, my sin's not that bad. I'm, I'm a good person. You know, there's, there's that guy who, oh, he, him, he's a sinner. That guy has done this, 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 and this. I've only done this, this, and this, so I'm better, therefore God must love me more. Our logic is flawed. God, God doesn't say that. God says we, we were enemies. For if while well, we were enemies in direct opposition to God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This term reconciliation is important. It means that once we were enemies of God, but now because of Jesus, there is peace between us and God. That that, that enmity has been resolved, and, and because of our removal of our sin and our guilt, our declaration of righteousness and the pouring out of God's wrath on his son. The cost of our sin, the cost of us being enemies with God was the death of Jesus. And so once again, we are are more sinful than you could ever imagine. How sinful are we? We killed God because of our sin. But we are more loved by God than we could ever imagine. God allowed that to happen so that we could enter into relationship with him. For if while we were enemies, while we were in direct opposition to God, we were reconciled, we were brought into peace with God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. This is the ultimate point of Easter, is to be saved. For those of you this morning who who, who have become Christians, we call it being saved, who if you've been a Christian, if you became a Christian a long time ago, I want you to remember why. Remember why you became a Christian. It's not because you you were able to do so. It's not because you just decided, I'm going to be a Christian, and then you were. You were weak. You were unable to do anything. And Jesus died for you. And you believed in that. You accepted that. You believed and you came to him by faith for your salvation. And so now as you grow in your salvation, as you, as you read your Bible, don't do it out of guilt. Don't do it just because you have to read your Bible. Don't be like, okay, I've got to do it. Bring it out and then just run through it and then be done. Oh, Good, I can now my day. No, read your Bible because you love Jesus. Because Jesus did this for you. You are so in love with Jesus. It's not a guilt thing. It's a love thing. You love Jesus. So you're going you're gonna to read about him. Why why do you pray because you love Jesus and you get to talk with him? Why do you share the gospel with your neighbors and your friends because you you love Jesus and you want them to get to know Jesus? Why do you disciple the next generation because you want to see the new generation fall in love with Jesus? And it's all about the love that God showed for you. You never move on from this principle that you were a sinner in need of grace. It's the foundation of everything you do. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know what that means, talk to your pastor, talk to someone who's on stage today. They'd be more than happy to share with you what that means. But but real quickly, what it means to be saved is that that number one, you believe that you are a sinner. You believe that you are a sinner. When when you were listening this, this afternoon to this text, it, it calls you ungodly. It called me ungodly. At one point in my life, I was ungodly. I was once God's enemy. I was once a sinner. But God did something amazing in my life. And and I want that for you. We want that for you. And so so you need to believe that you are a sinner. Not just that you are a sinner who has done a few bad things, but you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. And in your sinful state, you are an enemy of God. You, You are ungodly and you are powerless to do anything about it. If you spend the rest of your life reading your Bible, that doesn't get you saved. If you spend the rest of your life in prayer to God, that doesn't get you saved. You need to admit that you are a sinner and you're powerless to do anything about it. Secondly, you need to believe with all your heart that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. You need to believe that the wrath of God, the righteousness, the holiness against sin was poured out on Jesus. That he suffered, that he died and he bled and he went through all of that for you for your sin to be taken away from you. And when you believe that, you are declared righteous, you're justified, your sins are forgiven because of that. And to do that, you just need to come to God by faith. Come to God by faith. Don't say, okay, Jesus died for me, now I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to church and hope that gets me there. Because Jesus died for me, I'm just going to talk really loud. Because Jesus died for me, now I'm going to spend the rest of my life just helping the poor and hope that gets me to heaven. You need to come to Jesus by faith, understanding that that He is the only thing that can save you, the only person who can save you. And so, as we celebrate Easter, it's not that Jesus was beaten and tortured and punished to guilt you to come to Him. It's that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. I was more sinful than I could ever imagine, but God. God did something amazing. God did something impossible. People ask, well, how can a, a God who's loving send people to hell? I would say a better question is, how is a God who is just, how can he forgive a sinner like me and allow him into heaven? And so God does awesome things. But we can't have this high view of ourselves where we don't need Jesus We can't come to a Good Friday service and hear about the cross and just say, okay, now I'm going to do my thing. And we need to understand that Jesus did this all for us. Why? Because God loves us so much. And so as we take communion in the next few minutes, remember the love of God. The love of God in communion is is when we take the bread and the grape juice or wine, whatever you guys use here, you (laughs) remember... The sacrifice that Jesus gave for you. And you reflect on the love of God for you. Reflect how sinful you once were and how loved by God you are. So I'm going to pray and then Lucas is going to come up and finish this off. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today for your cross that changes everything. That we were sinners, we were wretched, we were ungodly, we were dead in our sins, But you did something amazing. We thank you so much for that. And we pray that you never let us forget it. And as we take communion, as we sing that song, we, we pray and we leave these doors, we would tell other people and they would learn to love you like we love you because you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.